come before you today and just call upon you to do what you do best, to reveal truth through your word, and to allow that to change our hearts. Today I pray that as we continue to look at trials, we continue to look at what we can do in the face of trials and how we can keep Satan from having victory in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity, Lord, that you would speak, that you would hide me behind you, Lord, that we would be able to really hear from you today. And I pray that that would be the case. I pray that we'd walk out uh, just new and changed and renewed. And Lord, even on a hot day like today, Lord, that we would be able to be renewed with strength and energy as we face each trial and each day that you have before us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody can be seated. All right. Well, I'm going to make a promise I might not be able to keep, so I won't make a promise, but I will try to get you out before 12... 15 or whatever it was last week because it is hot. Um, uh, but uh, it's great to be here again and uh, to be able to continue to talk about trials uh, this morning. Uh, I think it's still appropriate. We all are facing trials and it just seems like every time we turn around it's a new trial for each and every one of us. We have trials of many shapes, many sizes, different colors, all those things. It's just trials are different for all of us, but I'm hoping today. Uh, that we will continue to talk about this and see how God wants to use trials in our lives. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit of review as we continue on. First of all, <clears throat> a couple months ago, I looked about maybe eight months ago or so, we talked about general quarters, and then last week we talked about twisted trials. And this week we're going to look at twisted trials part two. Uh, and uh, the idea here, the first time we talked about trials, we talked about the fact that trials are inevitable. No matter what we do or how hard we try, there will be trials in our life. Tough times will come. Uh, we looked at the fact that James 1 tells us that when trials come, not if trials come. And we looked throughout Scripture and we've seen time and time again that even God's children experience trials. Nobody is immune from trials. Trials come to all people, all men. Trials even came to Jesus Christ himself. Trials are an inevitable thing of life. <clears throat> so we needed to be prepared for them. And we talked about how do we prepare and how do we lean into the righteousness and the holiness that God has already given to us. And then last week, we were able to look at the sense of trials and where they come from. That trials come from God. They are a gift from God that he wants to use for our good, his glory, and and that Satan then, even though God wants to use them for our good and his glory, Satan wants to take those trials and twist them so that they will be used for evil, that they will be used to take us away from God, that they will be used to uh, go against our good and against God's glory. And that's what we saw Satan wanting to do. And so today, we're going to continue the idea of trials. We're going to be continuing to look at this process. But today, see, la- last week we left at this. That Satan wants to twist your trials, don't let him. That Satan wants to twist your trials for his glory, not God's glory. And we need to look to God in our trials and see what it is he would have for each and every one of us to get out of it. Not to get out of the trial, but to actually get something out of it for our good and God's glory. But today I want to take it maybe one step further and say, okay, well, let's, let's not let Satan do it, but let's actually look at some sp- specific ways that we can actually face trials, specific things we can do that will help us to make sure that we are giving God the glory through our trials. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, I don't, as, by way of illustration as we start, I want to talk about this line of books that many of you have seen, maybe some of you have read, um, and uh, it's the blank for dummies books. Take whatever you want it to be, computers for dummies, um, fixing a car for dummies, I don't know, there's, there's like 100 or 300 or 1,000. I don't even know how many there are. But the idea of these books is to give you a, this is what you do and this is what you don't do. It's the very basics, right? It's, it, if you don't know how to do something, you get one of these books and it tells you exactly what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And if you follow their ad- advice, maybe you'll turn out to be actually be able to do something, all right? Uh, another type of that kind of book I was given when I was, when, 
we found out that Felicia was expecting Josiah. Somebody well-meaning, I don't even remember who it was at this point, gave me a little book, and it was called The Idiot's Guide to Being a First-Time Dad. And I thought, wow, I don't know how to take that. Um, I don't think they were calling me an idiot, but I don't know. So, But anyway, this was given to me. But I'll tell you what, I read the book, and it was great, because it told me these are some things that you really should do as a first-time dad, and these are some things that you really shouldn't do. And if you do these things, then you're not going to be perfect, but it'll help you in fatherhood. And I used a lot of their ideas, and it was pretty good. And a lot of these books that they come out with, and um, I'm, they, that's what they want to do. They want to take something that we don't know what to do, and how do we handle it? What do we do, and what do we not do? So today we're going to look at James chapter 1. In a sense, I want to look at James chapter 1 as the book Trials for Dummies. Now, I'm not calling you dummies today. All right, don't take that, okay? Nobody here is a dummy, but I will say this, that sometimes in trials, we struggle with figuring out what to do and what not to do. Sometimes we just completely shut down because we say, this trial is too big for me, I don't know what to do, and we just completely shut down. Well, today I want to look at a few things. I want to look at James chapter 1 again. We're going to go back there. And James chapter 1, I believe, gives us an outline of things we should do and things we shouldn't do when trials come our way. And so we're going to go back to James chapter 1. We're going to primarily be there, but yes, we will be jumping around to many scriptures as well. Uh, And if we are following along in the PowerPoint, it's New King James, by the way, if that can help you. Um, So we will be going to James chapter 1 and then looking at some other passages and looking at trials. So let's go ahead and read James chapter 1 again. I know we've read it last week, but let's read it one more time. If you turn with me to James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted uh, by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but is a doer of the work, then this one will be blessed in what he does. And if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is what James chapter 1 says about trials, and I want to start by saying this. When we read... James chapter 1, a lot of times we break up the book of James. We break it up into little tiny pieces. And we'll say, well, let's read this verse for this situation, this verse for another situation. Somebody needs wisdom, let's go to this verse. Somebody is facing temptation, let's go to this verse. Somebody facing a trial, let's go here. Uh, If somebody is struggling of taking what God says and actually doing it, we go to here. 
But let's keep in mind that James chapter 1 is all in one context. James chapter 1, actually the whole book of James, and I want to encourage you, when you read James, put it in this context. James is writing to people who are undergoing trials. So everything we see here applies to trials in some way, shape, or form. That'll transform the way you look at James. It did for me. Because we look at it and we can say all these things that James is saying, it's not just these isolated pieces of advice that we should follow as Christians, but these are things that James tells us throughout the whole book. And if we could look at the whole book today, I would. We don't have the time. But as we look at the whole book, we'll see that you can point everything back to how we should respond to trials. Specifically in James chapter 1 is really this is a overview of what the whole book of James will be about. This is what we'll see. So we are in James chapter 1, so let's look at some things that we should do and some things that we shouldn't do. The first thing we see here in James chapter 1 is we need to ask, not doubt. We need to ask, don't doubt. That's what we're looking at in our first thing. When we come into trials, what is the first way we should respond? If we don't want to let Satan twist our trials for his purposes, and instead we want to let God do what he wants to do through our trials, the first thing we need to do is ask and not doubt. So our positive response, number one, the first way that we should act in a trial is to ask for wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God says, ask for wisdom, and I will give it to you. And the thing is, a lot of times when we get into this passage, we reply it to wisdom in general, but James is talking about when you're in a trial and you need wisdom, then you need to ask God. Well, let's take a few minutes to talk about this wisdom that we're asking for because it's not wisdom that the world offers. Uh, actually, we'll, when we look, go through this, we're actually going to see here that in another part of James, we actually see that there is a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. But right now, let's look at the very basics. Uh, in Job 28, Job 28 um, And for time's sake, I printed a lot of these verses out ahead of time so we don't have to be turning all over the place. So uh, for time's sake, we're going to be in Job 28. We're actually going to be looking at verses 12 through 27. I know it's kind of lengthy, but this is a very good passage when it comes to understanding what wisdom is all about. And in verse 12 in Job chapter 28, this is what it says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighted for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir or the precious onks of sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry or fine gold. Nor mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and an apportion for the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. Long passage to say one simple phrase. Wisdom only comes from God himself. Wisdom cannot be found in any other source. True wisdom only comes from God We can look to other people, we can look to experts, we can look to other things, we can try to figure things out on our own, but this is not true wisdom. If we want true wisdom, God alone is the one who gives wisdom. So that's why James tells us, if you need wisdom in your trial, how you should respond to this, if you need wisdom, then ask God, because God is the one who gives wisdom. See, so many times I feel we can find ourselves in trials and we try maybe to read books or try to ask other people or try to figure things out on our own and how we should respond to the trial or how we should live in face of the trial. God says, don't do that. Don't ask other people. Ask me. Ask God for wisdom. And what does God say? He says, I will give it to you. God will give you wisdom in your trial if you will only ask. So wisdom only comes from God himself. The second thing we see about wisdom is that wisdom is fearing God and forsaking evil. Back in Job chapter 28, the very 
next verse, after those first ones we just read in, in Job 28, verse 28, Job concludes this idea of what wisdom is, and he says this, And to man he has said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Job 28, 28 tells us that wisdom is fearing God and forsaking evil. And fearing, we've talked about this before, it's not that we cower in fear of God, it is that we are so awestruck at his power that we do what he says, that we obey, that we respond, that we do what he asks us to do. That is fearing God. So we need to fear God, do what is right, do what he asks us to do, and forsake evil. Those two things, that is what wisdom is all about. God gives us wisdom and he wants us to fear God and forsake evil. Other passages that we could look at that speak to this are Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Also Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So we see as we look through scripture that indeed wisdom comes from God and God alone, but the wisdom that he wants for you and for me when we face trials is for us to have wisdom on how we obey God or how we honor him, how we glorify him, and how we stay away from evil. And isn't this true in trials? As we look at trials, we are pushed both directions, right? We talked about this last week. A trial can push us towards God or a trial can push us away from God. A trial can push us towards disobedience or it can push us towards obedience, Let's let it push us towards obedience, obeying God and forsaking evil. That is what wisdom is. So when we face trials, we need to ask God that he will show us the way of how we should follow him and forsake evil. So we need to understand that. And then let's go to that passage in James that I referred to earlier. Uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. James talks a little bit more here about wisdom. And so we've seen that wisdom comes from God, and it's about obeying God and forsaking evil. But then James kind of tells us what it should look like, okay, what wisdom looks like. James three thirteen through 18. And here we read this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. And actually, this is the wrong passage. So we're going to move over to, a, let's see, where are we looking? All right. See, this is why, all right, all right, it's okay. Okay, James, where I'm at, uh-oh. 3.13. Oh, I'm looking at four, okay, see, I'm using a new Bible, by the way. I'm just getting a disclaimer here, a new Bible, not sure how it works. All right, uh, <laughs> 3.13, all right. You know, you need, a, you need something like that to humble you. That's good, that's good, all right. Uh, all right, so, yeah, 3.13, instead of skipping over to 4.13, we're going to look at 3.13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So James talks about wisdom and he says, this is how wisdom looks. Wisdom brings peace, right? As we look at this passage, wisdom is seen in how we act. Wisdom is seen in how we act, and the primary way that we are is seen is through we act in peace. You know, it talks about being pure, uh, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, peaceable, and without partiality and without hypocrisy. All these things are, are um, attributes of somebody who is peaceful, who is looking for peace. The opposite of that is bitter envy and self-seeking. That's what James tells us. So as we look at wisdom, what is wisdom? Well, it comes from God and it's obeying him and forsaking evil. Well, how does that look? Well, it means we're not going to be treating people with envy and self-seeking. We're not going to be boasting against God. We're not going to put ourselves against God and be hurtful towards him and others. We're going to be peaceable. We're going to be peaceful towards God and others. So we're going to experience peace and we're going to be people of peace. You see, wisdom will be seen in how we act. Wisdom is not just what happens in our head. It start, there's knowledge, that's part of wisdom, but wisdom goes from our head to our hands. It's how we act, it's who we are, it's our attitude, it's what we do. And it's when we treat people 
with peace. And it's when we have these attributes in our life. But see, self-seeking and selfishness is the opposite of wisdom. The world says when trials come, you should get angry. And when trials come, you should do what you can to hurt whoever's causing that trial. That's what the world says. But God says something completely different. Your source of your trial needs to be looked at with peace. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's not, but we need to have peace. We need to act out our righteousness. We need to act out wisdom that God has given. So that's our first positive response. We need to ask for wisdom. The wisdom that only comes from God, from obeying and forsaking, and also the wisdom that is seen in how we act towards others. But then there's a negative response that we see also here in James that is kind of the opposite of that asking for wisdom. So we've seen what we should do, now let's look at what we shouldn't do. So a negative response. The first negative response that we should have, that we should not have, the response we shouldn't have, is to doubt God. James 1, starting in verse 6. James 1, starting in verse 6, and this is right after he says to ask for wisdom, and it says this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the, let the lowly glory, brother, glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in all his pursuits." So we read that passage, James 1, 6 through 11, and what do we see here? Well, we shouldn't doubt God. That's pretty simple when we look at James. It says, look, ask for wisdom, but don't doubt that he's going to give it to you. You see, don't come into a trial and say, God, I want wisdom. I don't really know if you'll give it to me, and I'll try some other ways to get it. But, you know, if you can give it to me, great, go ahead and do it. No, James says, trust God completely. Do not doubt him. Do not mistrust him in your trial. And how does that look? Well, let's look at a couple other passages that would talk about this. The first thing we know about not doubting God is that we need to trust God as a rewarder. Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 tells us we need to trust God as a rewarder. Hebrews is just one book ahead of James. And in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we are going to be seeing what we can know about not doubting. So Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11 verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what is part of not doubting? It is not doubting that God is going to give what he says he's going to give. He says he's going to give wisdom. He's going to give a reward. Even in the midst of trial, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So God's going to give you what he says he'll give you. And we need to trust that. We need to believe that he is. That's faith. We believe that God exists. We also believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. It's not just about believing in who he is. It's about believing on what he's going to do. It's about believing that he says one thing and he's going to be faithful to what he said he's going to do. So when we come and we ask for wisdom, we need to be faithful. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing and that he is a rewarder. Uh, Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 is where we're going to see our second point here about doubting God. In Matthew 6.24... And this is, gonna, this is a very common passage as we look at Matthew 6.24. If you turn there with me, Matthew 6.24. All right, and this verse says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he follows this up. This is Jesus talking. He says, You cannot serve God and mammon. The second thing about doubting God is we need to trust God only. It's not trust God with a bunch of other things. Like, I'll throw him into the list of things that I trust in. We need to trust in God alone. When we come into trials, we can't look to other things to get us through it. We need to look to God alone. Have faith that he will give wisdom. Trust him alone. And then in this verse in Matthew chapter 6, it goes on and says, You cannot serve God and mammon, which gets to our next point. Not only do we yet must trust God only, but we need to trust God, not our wealth. And we also see this in the book of 1 Timothy. We also see this in the book of 1 Timothy. It says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God 
who gives all, all gives us all richly all things to enjoy. So we see Matthew says you can't serve God and mammon. First Timothy says, look, even if you have money, don't trust in it. Trust in God and trust in God alone. Well, what does this have to do with trials? Well, and this is where we go into James, back into James chapter 1. And this is this whole passage that talks about the lowly brother glorying in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation. And then what does it say about the rich? It says, No sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in all his pursuits. This verse is not isolated just to tell people that you shouldn't have money. These verses are here to show that in trials, when we ask for wisdom, when we trust God, a sign of us doubting is when we rely on our wealth, and not only just our wealth, if we rely on our own means of deliverance, if we rely on something that is from us, our wealth, our prestige, our success, our families, whatever it might be, anything that is from us, if we trust in that instead of trusting in God, when the sun comes up and it's scorching like it is today, it'll kill the grass. In the same way, the rich man, when the burning heat of trials comes along and the rich man is trusting in his riches, in his wealth, or in his man-made things, it's going, he's going to fade away. That's what James says. So when we ask for wisdom, we don't doubt. We trust God as a rewarder. We trust him only. And we don't trust our wealth. We trust God and God alone. So when we hit a trial, we need to trust in his wisdom and not rely on other traditional ways that the world would say to get through things. So next, we're going to see the next double here. The next thing to do and the next thing not to do, and that is listen, don't speak. Listen, don't speak. Our first positive, re- our second positive response of the day is going to be listen to God. James 1, 18 through 21. James 1, 18 through 21, and here's what we read. It says, Of his own will he brought us forth from the word of truth, that it might be a find of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So what does James tell us? In the face of trials, what do we need to do? Well, first, we need to listen to God. See, when we ask for wisdom, if we just ask and then we don't wait for a response, that doesn't really make sense. So we ask God for wisdom, but then we need to listen to his response. We need to listen to him. And how do we do that? Well, we do it through his word. God has given us his word, and we can listen to God through his word. We see this in James 1, 18 through 21. It's mentioned in verse 18. It says that we are brought forth by the word of truth, that we are saved by the word of truth. Then it goes on and talks about, in verse 21, that we need to receive with meekness the implanted word. Once again, that is God's word. God wants us to listen to him through the words he's given us in Scripture. And there's three things that make God's word worth listening to in a trial. Uh, The first thing we see is in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter... Uh, chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, this is what we see about God's word. And you're going to notice the word use here is pretty familiar to James. Having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is grass, and the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. See, Peter says the same thing that James is saying about God's word. And he's saying God's word is eternal. God's word lasts. God's word is what to look to in a trial. Remember, last week we looked at the fact that in a trial, we need to keep our mind on what's coming, the eternal, what matters in the grand scheme of things and not just in the temporal things of this life, that we need to look towards the eternal things. And what James and Peter say here is that God's word is eternal And if we want to trust in anything, we need to trust in God's word because it saved us. And so therefore, God's word is eternal. It will never change and it will always be there for us to rely on. The second thing we see in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is that not only is God's word eternal, God's word is effective. God's word is effective. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, 
Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but it is of truth, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. We see in First Thessalonians that if we understand that God's word is not man's word, but it's God's word itself, that we can trust what God is saying to us through his word, when we trust and listen to his word, then it will be effective in our lives. In other words, it'll make a difference. See, God's word is not just a, a vain thing that we read. It's, just, it's not just black and white on a page. God's word is effective. It'll make a difference in our lives. And that's why we need to listen to God in our trials. If we want the wisdom we've asked for, we need to look for it in the word of God, trust that he will give it to us, read and listen to what he says so that it'll be effective in our lives. But it is effective, but it is also equipping. God's word is equipping in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. See, it's effective in the fact that it will work in us, but then how does it work? Well, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us a little bit about that. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we're facing our trials, we need to be equipped for what God wants us to do. And, and how does he do that? Well, he does it through uh, his word. He does it through doctrine, teaching. He does it through reproof, telling us when we're doing things wrong. For correction, telling us how to right those wrongs. And for instruction in righteousness, how to continue to live a life that is lived in righteousness. See, God's word will do that for us so that we will be complete, so it will be mature, so that we will be equipped for every good work that God wants us to do. So when we face a trial, we need to not only ask for wisdom, we need to listen for what God wants to tell us through his word. And if we do that, we will see God using the trial for his glory and our good and not Satan getting a hold of it. Now, the opposite of this that we can do is if we don't listen to God instead, the second negative response we're going to look at this morning is that we will speak hastily. That we will speak hastily. James 1, 19 and 26. We already read James 1, 19. We'll read it again. It says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And then it goes on in verse 26. We see something very similar. It says, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue... He deceives his own heart. This one's religious religion is useless. So we're going to look at three things this morning that a quick tongue leads to. All right, quick tongue does. First thing, a quick tongue leads to problems. Proverbs 10.8. Uh, Proverbs 10.8 talks about this. It says this. The wise, remember we're talking about wisdom, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool, fool will fall. One who is using his words will fall. And then Proverbs 10.19, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 13.3, he who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Proverbs 18.13, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and a shame to him. And finally, Proverbs 21.23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. The Bible is full of talking about the fact that when we speak too quickly, it will lead to problems, it will lead to destruction, it will lead to these things that in a trial, that's what Satan wants. He wants us to be destroyed. So when we start running our mouth in the face of a trial, instead of listening to what God wants to tell us, we are in great danger. You see, a quick tongue leads to problems, and a quick tongue lacks understanding. Ecclesiastes 5, 2, I love this verse. It says this, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Well, what is God saying here? He's saying, look, I am God in heaven. You are man on the earth. You have no right to speak. I am the one that can speak. You are on the earth, I am in heaven, I have complete understanding. And when you speak against me, when you quickly speak against me, you are not understanding that I am God and you are not. That is what is, is being said here in Ecclesiastes. Don't, be, don't speak too quickly, let your words be few, because God knows what he's doing. God is in heaven, not you. So we need to understand that God, a quick tongue lacks understanding. When we are quick to 
start talking and trying to to use God, use our words to defend ourselves or whatever it might be, we are not only going to cause problems, but it's also going to lead to our misunderstanding what God wants to do. And finally, a quick tongue blames God. James 1.13. A quick tongue blames God. We go back to James 1 because I think this talks about it in verse 13. Let no one say, and we is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Okay, back in James, we see this. It's, re, it's connected here. When we run our mouths, when we use our mouths, when we use our lips too hastily, when we speak too quick, what we are doing, one of those things that we do is blame God and say, God, you are the, you are the author of this bad thing and you want, to turn, you want to turn it into bad. That's really what we're saying. We want that God is turning this into evil. We looked at this last week. God does give trials, but it's not for evil. It's for good. When we start blaming God and saying what he's doing is, is unrighteous or it's wrong or it's evil, that is when we are using our lips in a way that will dishonor our Lord. A quick tongue blames God. See, we don't want to do that. And we see in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, uh, we see this twice. In Job chapter one twenty two, it says, In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And then in Job 2.10 Job is speaking to his wife and he says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You take these two verses together and what you see is that Job did not sin with his tongue, did not sin with his lips, and that is directly connected to charging God with wrong. You see, when we come into trials, we need to make sure that we don't, aren't quick to just start blaming people or blaming God and start running our mouth. We need to sit and listen and read God's word and see what he wants us to get out of it instead of being quick to speak. Because when we're quick to speak, we're going to miss listening, right? I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation with somebody, you can't listen to what they're saying if you're speaking all the time, right? That makes sense. If I'm in a conversation with my wife and both of us are speaking at the same time the whole time, and at the end... We're not, neither of us are going to have any idea what each other, which, what each other was saying. Okay? We're not going to have any idea what each other was saying. So the idea here is we can't be too busy talking or we won't be able to listen to what God wants for us. So we need to make sure we don't have a quick tongue, that we do not speak hastily. Finally, the third pair here that we're going to look at. The positive response, the third positive response, it's going to be do good, don't sin. Do good, don't sin. See, in James 1, 22 through 27 is where we'll see the first thing, that we need to do good in trials. We need to do good in trials. James 1, 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. All right, so we see this to be true. And then also in verse 27, it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What God wants us to get out of trials is he wants us to do good in trials. See, action needs to accompany hearing. That's what James is saying. Don't just listen to what God says. That's a good start. But if you only listen and then you let it just fade away, it's no good. You need to listen to what God says and then do what he says. You need to take God's word and apply it to your life. So you need to do, not just listen. So action should always accompany hearing. Uh, Luke six forty six through 49. Many of you are pretty familiar with this passage. And this is the passage of... The wise man building his house on the rock versus the foolish man building his house on the sand. The context there in Luke 6 is this. It says this. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock, but he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. You see, when God tells us about the man who builds the house on the rock and the house on the sand, 
know, a lot of times we refer to whether we're putting our house on Jesus or on the world. And I see, I see where we get that from. I think you can get that from other parts of Scripture. But as you look at this passage, what you're really seeing is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, the person who builds on the rock is the person that doesn't just hear what I say, but they actually do it. And the person that builds their house in the sand is the person who hears what I say, but doesn't do it. Right? It's like, I've given you instructions on how to build this house, and you choose to build on the sand, and, the, and you're going to be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying here. So the same idea that comes across in James is that we need to do what we hear, and otherwise destruction will come. So in a trial, we need to not only listen to what God says on how to be wise, but we need to do it. We need to do it. We need to practice it. Not wait until we're done with the trial, not wait until we're feeling good about things, but do it now. Action should, other, should be for others is our second point here. Action should be for others. James one twenty seven says, Pure and undefiled religion for God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Uh, as we look at 1 John chapter 3, 17 through 19, he talks about this as well. 1 John 3, 17 through 19. And I think I wrote down the wrong reference there. So, uh, in, in, John, in 1 John three seventeen through 19, what it says is, let our, let our deeds be done in word, or not only in word, but in truth and in deed. That's what it says. I'm going to try to find that, because I wrote down the, I typed out the wrong passage. This is a rough day for me. 318. All right, I don't know, what did I write? What's the problem? Oh, it's there. I don't know how I missed it. Oh, I just printed it on the wrong, I gotcha. All right. 1 John 3.18 But my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And before that verse, it actually says, Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then we read, Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. See, the truth here is the same as what James was saying. Action should be for others' benefit. We need to do things for others, even in a trial. This is one of the hardest things to do in a trial, right? Because our trial is hitting us and all that we're thinking about is ourselves. That's our natural, natural inclination. I want to give you a great illustration of this, of this being done. Somebody looking out for others rather than themselves. So Ron goes to the hospital with his stroke, right? And I heard stories. Apparently, John was up there giving the nurses a hard time because he wanted to get over to see Ron. And John wanted to minister to Ron, even though John is in the midst of a trial himself. And no matter what, he was determined, and he eventually, I guess, got a student to take him over. <laughs> Not surprising, right? Because he loves Ron. And he knew that even in his trial, it's more important that he goes and tries to meet other people's needs. But we could have so many different illustrations if we wanted to think about it. But in a trial, are we looking out for others? And we need to be. Our actions should be for others. And finally, in 1 John 2, going back just a little bit in 1 John in 1 John chapter 2, we read this other th- little piece as we're talking about actions need to be motivated by God, not the world. 1 John two fifteen through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. See, our actions should, not, should be motivated by God, not the world. When we are facing a trial, our action needs to be motivated by God, not motivated by the world. And that's what James is telling us when it tells us that we need to be a doer of the word, that we need to have action, that we need to do good and not sin. It's looking into God's word and not being a hearer, but a doer because of what God tells us to do. You see, we don't let the world tell us how we should act in a trial. We let God tell us how we should act in a trial. So that's our last positive response. Now our last negative response, what we shouldn't do in trials, is seen in James 1.14 and James 19-21. through And that is sinning in our trials. So we need to do good, not sin. So negative response number three is sinning in trials. James 1.14 talks about sin. It says this, uh, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
James is talking here and he tells us about that. Then in 19 through 21, it says this. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. You see, we are told in the face of trials to not let sin take over. You see, in James, he tells us that we should not sin in our trials. It's because there's three things we need to understand about sin. Sin is anti-God. There's no question about it. Sin is anti-God. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 32 for all three of these points. But sin is anti-God. In Ephesians 4, 26 through 32, this is what we read. It says, Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even in God, as God in Christ has forgave you. And we see this. So we see that sin is anti-God in this passage. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? It's saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. And how do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How do we make God sad? How do we make him upset and sad? It's when we sin. That's what this verse says. So sin is anti-God. It's against what God would have for us to do. So of course we shouldn't sin in trials. That should go without saying. We also see this very interesting thing here is that sin is linked to anger. We see it in James and it says, Be slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Also back here in Ephesians, it says, Be angry, but don't sin. And then it goes on and it says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath or give place to the devil. Satan wants to use anger to bring you to sin. And why does it apply to trials? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. When we have trials, if we let anger consume us, if we let the trials of this life make us angry towards God and towards others and towards our situation, then sin is right on the doorstep. Because anger and sin are linked. Not to say you can never be angry about something. Obviously, we see Jesus has been angry about things. We see here, it actually says, be angry. But then it says, do not sin. The point here is that if we are angry, if we're filled with anger, it will lead to sin if we're not careful. And the same thing we see here in James, that when the wrath of man comes, it does not produce the righteousness of God. So we need to guard against anger in our trials. And finally, the last thing about sin that we'll see in Ephesians is that sin is seen in our treatment of others. Sin is seen in our treatment of others. Here in Ephesians, we see it in 28 and 29. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Okay, that's stealing against somebody, right? And then it talks about instead, uh, do what is good and give to those who need. And then in verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And then also in verse 32, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even in God and Christ has forgiven you. You see, in a trial, sin is seen in our treatment of others. How many times have you seen someone in a trial or maybe you've been in a trial and the last thing you want or the last thing you do is to be nice to people? I've seen it so many times, right? You've seen people just get away from me, don't talk to me, I'm, I'm hurting, I don't want to talk to you. I've seen it so many times. And that is the absolute wrong way to be seen here. That is really, sin is taking you away from people. See, sin should, it, it drives us away from people. We need to be kind to one another. We need to love one another, even in our trials. Not treat people unfairly. Yes, you're going through a trial, but that person may not understand that. And yes, that person may visit you at the wrong time. Yes, that person may say the wrong thing at the wrong time. But we are still called to be loving and gentle and kind and to treat others well. If we don't, then we are sinning. We need to treat others well, even in the face of trials. So we need to make sure we do good and we don't sin. So in conclusion this morning, let's recap the things we've looked at. And I know, to be honest with you, this sermon's been kind of all over the place. I've missed a couple of passages. And you know what? Don't let that deter you from what God is saying in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is this, that God wants us to ask for wisdom, but Satan wants us to doubt God's provision. 
God wants us to ask. Satan wants us to doubt. Don't let Satan win. God wants us to listen to him is the second thing. God wants us to listen to him. Satan wants to run, wants us to run our mouths. Satan wants us to speak. He wants us to run our mouths. He wants us to blame God where God wants us to listen to him. And finally, the third thing, God wants us to do good. Satan wants us to do evil. These are what we can see today. And I want you to know if you're going through a trial or when you do go through a trial, do these things, ask for wisdom, listen to God, and do good in the face of them. But do not doubt God. Do not speak hastily and do not do evil. Do not sin. These are not the ways that God wants you to use your trials. I want to give you one last reminder And we're just going to close this morning. There's not going to be a closing song. I'm just going to close in prayer after I'm done with this little passage. So this is kind of our closing thought. So let's bring it all together. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 8 one more time. We didn't went here last week. And honestly, with all that we've said, I want to listen to Romans chapter 8 once again. Because Romans chapter 8 tells us that we can have victory in our trials. Victory does not come through us, but it comes through Christ And with God's leading, we can be wise, we can hear him, and we can do good even in the face of our trials. I want you to remember those things as we go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, a beautiful passage that talks about what happens when we're going through trials. And you know what, we sang some songs that reflected this this morning. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, let's go back, all these things, remember what he's talking about, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, this is Satan we're talking about, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you remember nothing else from today, because I know it's hot and we're all sweating, remember, remember that God gives us victory. And that we can be wise, we can hear what he wants, and we can be good even in the midst of trials. And it's because he gives us the victory. He died, he rose again. And nothing in this world, Satan and nothing in this world, nothing can take us away from him. His love gives us the victory through our trials. So let's concentrate on that. And let's do that when we come to trials. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for trials that you give us. Help us to respond in a godly way. Help us to respond by listening. Help us respond uh, in all the ways that we should, that we should ask and listen and do good. And Lord, help us not to sin. Help us not to be so quick to speak. And Lord, help us not to doubt you. God, I pray and thank you this morning that we do have victory over temptation. We have victory over trials. We can see you do great things through trials because of your love and your mercy and all that you've done, God. And we put our trust and our faith in you as a church and as individuals today that you will use our trials for your glory and our good. And we trust you that you will give us the wisdom we need to get through these days ahead. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.